Record Ministries podcast. You're listening to the B side. Let's get this record spinning. I'm Carl, joined again by Pastor Micah. How you doing? I'm good, thank you. <laughs> good. <laughs> Our own golden oldie Bob's back. Hey, now that's I like that. Hello, golden old but good. They were good in the '90s. Ron's back. <laughs> He's a Cowboys fan. Yeah, let's go a little deeper. <laughs> <laughs> they were great in the 80s. <laughs> and Salsa Mike. Salsa Mike, yes. Salsa. Hello, everybody. He makes the best homemade salsa. He does. Well, thank, you, so great stuff. thank you, Carl. Thank Don't know. Didn't get none. Oh. Look good out. on the pictures. That's all I got to say. Look good on the pictures. Tastes pretty good going down, Mike, I got to say. <laughs> you guys got any stories? And now we just got Weathers original instead of... Oh, yeah. You guys got all your hard candy that Mike's been passing around? We do. All right, good. I'm super happy about that. You are very. You can tell by the tone of my voice. <laughs> I tried not to click it last Today's time. Today's topic's fairness, uh-huh. right? Yeah, you, you did not try not to click it last time. I did try not to click it. You literally clicked it directly into the microphone. Oh, yeah, yeah I did, didn't I? Yes, you I did. certainly did. I did do that. I, I'm <laughs> sorry, Carl. Today's topic's, today's topic's bitterness, right? It might be. Mike. It might turn into that. <laughs> So, so we know the root of bitterness does grow us. We'll see. We'll see how well, we are at the end of this. The thing is, man, the 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 scripture you just put out there. Ooh, you're gonna have to eat them words. You're probably right. You're probably right. Yeah. <laughs> it won't in hindsight. Be the first time. <laughs> so you guys got anything you want to share before we dig in? Any stories? Any jokes? No, y'all don't like my dad jokes. No. I like the hindsight joke. The more I thought about, it, the more I laughed. You should. You should do that. Yeah. Yeah. Chris stepped out and we lost the dad jokes. I ain't got none. All right. Fair <laughs> enough. Do you guys see about that church in Pennsylvania getting struck by lightning and burning down? Mm-mm. Guys, see any videos on that? Mm-mm. No. It was pretty wild. It was a historic church in Pennsylvania. They think oh, it yes, was. Yes, I did see did that. Did you see that? I just saw it today. And then then they showed a, a video of the preacher talking on the inside. Yep. And there for a minute, I thought he was going to get struck. Yep. From what he said, I was like, whoa, hello. Yeah, that's exactly where I was going with that. It was it was a couple of weeks ago. It was struck by lightning. And I watched the video of it burning down. Steeple fell, everything. It burned to the ground. Yeah. And they they started releasing videos of some of the things this preacher is a Reverend Bruce McLeod. And preaching, he actually gave a whole wow. sermon. McLeod, yeah. He gave a whole sermon. I think it was the week before it got struck by lightning, telling people that the Bible is not inspired by God. Yes, Oops. I just saw that today. It's so weird. Did he really talk about that? I watched it, but I bet that lightning storm was. You're right. I guarantee it. <laughs> According to him, it was not. Like he gave a statement afterward that was very biblically illiterate, which is probably why he's preaching that the Bible is not inspired because it disagrees with his opinion. He said he doesn't believe that God causes the fire, doesn't believe that God causes sickness. Doesn't believe that God brings any kind of calamity or teaches through it. And I'm like, man. He's never read the Bible. So, Revelation. So what, what he's saying is God doesn't correct? Basically, yeah. And I've, you know, 
Hmm. I'm like every single one of these things, there was a lot of, I don't thanks and I do thanks in his statement. Hmm. And that's where we always go astray when it's, it's all built upon what we think, right? Yes, absolutely. And you look systematically, God doesn't create sickness. Okay. Jesus himself in revelation tells one of the churches that he's going to cast, cast them on a bed of sickness. If they don't repent, literally says this. And Amos, he's giving, a, the Most High gives a warning of Damascus and says he's going to burn Damascus to the ground with fire if they don't repent. In Isaiah, he says that I am the God who creates calamity and good things. I'm the one who brings darkness and light. I, the Lord, do all these things. What about, what about, uh, what about uh, people in the wilderness getting bit by snakes? Come on. That no doubt. Bad. Yep, no doubt. The devil didn't bring the same thing. You're talking about the, with the bronze serpent. That mm-hmm. was Numbers chapter, yeah. chapter is that. Two, isn't it? Uh, it was later in numbers. I, yeah, man, off the top of my head, I, I just can't. Put, I just put all the air. Hey, I I'll, I'll be able to tell you here in about two or three days because I'll have fair enough. I'll have uh, researched it. Out. <laughs> we'll do it. We'll do an addendum next week yeah, on the B go. side. But yeah, it was the God brings the the serpents and causes them to bite. Three, but originally probably num, num, later in numbers. You're right. You're right. Jesus referenced it in John three yeah, and yeah. points back to it yeah. because the bronze serpent's a picture of Jesus. That's not our Bible yes. study this week, but. Point is, God does bring calamity. God does bring discipline. God does bring correction. And when you're teaching horrible, heretical theology, there are times when God might burn your church to the ground. And it was deeper than just, and that's why the reason I brought this up, it was a little bit deeper than just teaching that the Bible wasn't inspired. It was the underlying reason, I believe. So this church also, every, every, my understanding is every Pride Month, they celebrate LGBT. Um, he gave a prayer at the end, praying to to God as Mother Earth and Mother Nature. It was bizarre. Oh, wow. And he he said that even in the day that or this morning when I was watching it, he said Mother Earth and Mother God and stuff like that. I was like, so he's doubling down on that. I was like, what's he talking about? <laughs> well, and here's the problem: I don't want to dive too much into the weeds on on that individual and right. and his heresy. But the problem is, it's all built on an elevated sense of loving thy neighbor. That's the problem. Usually you'll see churches that start supporting Pride Month and it's because, well, we've got to love our homosexual neighbors. Or you got a guy like that praying to Mother Nature because he wants to love on female neighbors. And then you start getting into things in the Bible that are very convicting and you start saying, well, it's not really inspired because it's not very loving of our neighbor. It's all built upon this heresy of of elevating our love for our neighbor over and above our love for the Most High. And it will lead us astray every time. And that's what I want to talk about this week. Last week, I made a statement at the end of the episode. I said, we've got to love God first and most. We have got to love God first and most. This week, I want to answer a couple questions. I want to answer, first off, this is a softball. We can answer this right now. Who is our first love? God. God. Should be God. Yeah. The Eternal Father, the Yeshua. Yeah. Yeah. Through Jesus, that should be our first love. 100%. 100%. Our relationship was with, with the eternal father through Jesus. He is our first love. Softball. Easy. Follow-up questions are, what does that mean in practice? And why does it matter? I want to read a couple verses before we dig in. I'll let you guys share your thoughts before we get into Matthew, but I want to read a couple things first to that end of what does that mean that he's our first love. The first thing I want to read is in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Where by inspiration of the Spirit, John says, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Another way to translate that is sin is transgression of law. Yep. He's saying that, and, and this is a definition for sin that's throughout Scripture, but I want to read this from the New Testament because sometimes we have a propensity to not take things seriously when it comes before Matthew. 
So here it is in John in a New Testament letter long after the ascension of Jesus, and he's saying sin is transgressing the law of God. Point blank. Yeah. It's the, the definition of sin did not change. Next thing I want to read is from the same book, same letter. I mean, 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, where John says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So he links, directly links loving God with obeying him, with keeping his commandments. In the same letter that he said sinning is disobeying the commandments, disobeying the law. Right, because when you sin, I mean, you know, honestly, when you're sinning, you're rejecting God, you're rejecting what he has for you. Absolutely. Yeah. Obedience, you're, disobedience is rejection. It's exactly what it is. That's how he takes it. That's exactly how he takes it. The next verse I wanted to read uh, before I open it up is Exodus chapter 20, verses 5 through 6, where we're told, the Most High says, you shall not worship them as in idols. He's talking about false gods. You shall not worship them or serve them for I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Notice he connects hating him with disobeying him, with refusing to worship him his way. He calls that hate. Verse 6 says, he continues, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Again, you have a direct link from the mouth of the Most High himself saying that loving him is directly connected with obeying his commandment, with obeying his expectations for how we approach him, for how we love our life. That's how he, he connects love and obedience. Mm -hmm. Love is, biblically speaking, loving God is never disconnected from obeying him. You guys got any thoughts? You got super quiet there. Nope. Well, I got all kinds of thoughts. But... <laughs> <laughs> Do we want to hear those though? We rather we ought to put them out there. Or not. <laughs> no. uh, you know, you when you when you was talking about uh, the the sin of of like same sex marriages and stuff like that, you know. We do got to love them because God loves them. He just doesn't love the sin they're in. Just like my reading habits or my little stupid habits that, that my little sinful nature puts out there. God doesn't, God still loves me, but he just doesn't love that sin I've got, you know? Um, so stuff like that, we've got to, we've got to try to try to bring them to God so he can give them the understanding of where they're at and give them the understanding of the sin they're in, just like he gives us the understanding of the sin we're in so we can repent of it. You know, and, and I'm not, I guess I am because sin, sin, no matter what it is, there's not the truth is sin, sin, and it's a rejection of God. And it's, it's disobeying his laws. It's disobeying his love. When you don't, when you don't have him as your first love, that means you love the world more than you do God. Period. Mm -hmm. If you don't love God, you got to love the world because you're, you're living, you're living in the world and of the world instead of living in the world and loving God. See what I'm saying? I do. Yeah. That's my thoughts. We used to have a principal in our school, and he would say, two choices on the shelf: pleasing God or pleasing self." And every decision that we make probably boils down to one of those two things. Mm -hmm. 
Is this decision that I'm making, is it pleasing myself or is it pleasing God? And so when we say to love God first and to put him first, that means that that is the essential being of everything that we are. It's the basis for our morals. It's the basis for how we act. It's the basis for how we treat each other because that's our first love. And, and sin, yes, God loves them, but sin also separates us from him. Yes. And, and so there's a divide when we continue in sin, then, then there's that divide that's there between us and the father. And, and yes, restoration is possible, but, but until that restoration happens, there's, there's a great divide there. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's why it hurts him so much. That's why he sent his son, of course, to, Correct. to die on the cross for us Correct. because we can't do it on our own. Yeah. And you know, um, I'm just going to kind of add this. We were born with sin, yes, which was the original sin from Adam and Eve because they they rejected him in the garden and got kicked out of the garden. That's the original sin. Now, everybody's got that. That's when you when you become and you know that you're doing the transgressional sin, that's the sin that really separates you from God. I mean, the original sin will separate, it does separate us from God, but the transgressional sin is what keeps us separated from God. It maintains a perpetual separation. Yeah. 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 And see, this is, this is, this is why I wanted to, to have this discussion because the, the issue is if we don't love our neighbor right, we run, we, we run the risk of encouraging them in their separation. Yes. And that's essentially what this church that I referenced is doing because they've, they've, They've so lowered their love of God himself in the way he says that he feels love and elevated their love of their neighbors that they're encouraging their neighbors and behaviors that are keeping them perpetually separated from the Father and calling it love. And it's not that this church is a really radical example of this, but you see measures of this in a lot of churches. A lot of churches. And it's, underst- and it's understanding who the father is, too. Mm-hmm. Because there was about six months ago, there was a different pastor out in California that wrote a big, long letter about this same topic and saying that Jesus would be down there with them and he would march in the parade with them. And he would, he would well, I mean, that's misguided because it's not understanding who the father is. Right. Would Jesus be down there with him? Yes, I think he absolutely is right on that part. He probably would be down there talking with them and tra- telling them to repent, telling them to... But would he march in the parade with him? No, he would not. Yep. Because he's not going to condone something that's against his character and against his nature. And so when we talk about loving God and putting him first, it's it's understanding his thoughts, which I know we can't do because he's God in his ways and not our ways. But it's the attempt. You know, Philippians tells us to let this mindset be in you. You know, yes. which was also in Christ Jesus. You know, have that because we have the mind of Christ. We we are to think. We are to think like Christ thinks, to think biblically and to think, you know, according to his ways. Mm-hmm. Well, the only way to do that is to know the Father. Yep. If we don't know him and know his nature and know his character, then we're not going to know how to follow. Or we're going to be misguided in our following. Yep, absolutely right. I love that you mentioned, go ahead, Bob. No, I was just going to say, if you don't dig out his attributes yeah. and put them in your life and apply them to your life, you'll never know. Yeah. There was an old preacher, he used to, he said, God's never going to ask you to do anything or do anything that's contrary to his nature and character. Exactly. And if you don't understand what that is, then we're not going to be going to be misguided on some of these issues. Yes. And that's why I, that's why I've specifically read these three verses 
or these three references that I did, because God gives us a definition of his character as, as we need to understand it. Like we don't have a full understanding of the infinite one. We, we likely never will, but he does give us enough of an understanding to know how to apply his character attributes to our life in a way that's pleasing to him. The problem is we ignore it. We don't, we don't like it or we pick and choose. We, we treat his word like a buffet. Mm-hmm. Like I'll pick this, 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 and this out. But I don't like this, 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 or this. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna use Christian liberty to give myself an excuse to disobey this stuff. But I'm gonna hold on to this stuff so I can browbeat my neighbor with that, yeah. right? So we, so we have, we have two extreme camps. We have the one extreme camp that's loving their neighbor straight into to a pit. But then we have the other extreme camp that's hypocritically applying the Father's commandments in order to browbeat certain people but make themselves feel good about their own sin. You know, what you mentioned on the round table, uh, Ron, with accountability. Like there's, a, there's an accountability problem here. We like to point the finger at others, but we don't like to identify what we might not be doing correctly, where we might not be measuring up to, to, to what he desires for us. Because like it or not, like we talked about last week, if we're treating him like a king, we have to understand that a king also has rules. He loves us just like any father does, but fathers have rules that disobeying the rules doesn't get you thrown out of the house, but it does incur consequences. And we've got to stop deceiving ourselves into believing that we can disobey him to our heart's content and not receive some sort of consequence for it. And that's understanding love as well, I think. Because love is not just allowing, when we love somebody, we're not going to just allow them just to do whatever we want, they want. You know, my kids are grown, but when they were in the house and now I have grandkids, why do I teach them not to just run out into the street after their ball without stopping and looking both ways? Mm-hmm. Because I love them and I don't want to see them get hurt. You know, and I know that if there's a car coming and they're not paying attention and they run out from that car, they could get hurt. And so love tells me that I'm going to teach them that and I'm going to, you know, <laughs> tell, tell them, tell them that. <laughs> If I didn't care, then I wouldn't care what they do. And so love is not just allowing anything and tolerating everything and just everything's okay because I love them. Love sometimes is telling them the truth. That's why Christ tells us in Ephesians to speak the truth in love. You know, not do it browbeating, not do it like you're talking about, you know, like some do. And and I grew up in a church that did that, you know, browbeat and pound them over the head and this, you know, holier than thou type attitude. That's not love. That's judgment. That's yeah. Anger, that's bitterness. That's right. like, you know, whatever you want to call it, but it's not love. You know, love is sharing the truth. That's what that's what love, the definition of love is. Mm-hmm. Absolutely right. Let me give you guys an example. So I think this was yesterday. You gave Grace a bunch of that, that some of that I no, it wasn't the ice cream. I'm sorry. You gave her ice cream sandwiches, but actually we came home um Sunday night mm-hmm. and Steph made a dessert. She made like a, a pudding Oreo dessert. Grace wanted some. So she came out to to the living room and asked Steph if she could have some of the dessert. Steph's response was, take the dog out. That's all she said. Okay. That was her response. Take the dog out. The obvious implication, given that it was in response to what Grace had asked for, was that take if you take the dog out first, this is your chore. This is the rule. Take the dog out first, then you can have some dessert. Grace was so focused on what she wanted 
And it led her to despise the rules that she stormed off and angrily said, I just wanted some dessert. It's not fair that I can't have any. Because what she heard was, no, you can't have dessert. Now take the dog out. Mm. But that's not what Steph said. What she said was, take the dog out, implying you could do this, then you'll get the reward. You'll get what you want when you do what you've been asked to do first. But that's not how she took it. And I think that's how we approach the eternal father sometimes. We want rewards. We want blessings. We want things. And then the father says, do this thing. And we get angry. And we, we don't hear, do this thing that I'm asking you to do because I'm your father and you're my child and I'm asking you to do this for me. We hear, oh, so I'm not going to get the blessings now. It's just all about these, these, these burdensome rules. That's what we hear. That's not what he's saying. We're putting words in his mouth, just like Grace was putting words in Stephanie's mouth. And that's a problem. And that problem is amplified when we take our love for him and reduce it down. We're not treating him like our first love. If we were, honestly, we, we would seek to obey him out of a genuine love for him. Well, that's the center of his conversation with Peter, I think. If you love me, feed my sheep. Mm -hmm. no, feed my sheep. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's, if we love fa the father, our actions should show that love. I mean, people should understand that me and Diane are married and love each other, not just because we wear a wedding ring or because you know, know us and know we're married. There should be some evidence, if you will, that, that we love each other. Yep. Yeah. And it's the same with our, with our Heavenly Father. There should be some evidence in our life that we love the Father. Yep, I agree. So... The second question was, what does that mean in practice? And scripture answers that. The, the, Holy, the Holy Father himself says, if you love me, keep my commandments. This, yeah. this is what it looks like in practice. My next question was, why does it matter? And that's, this is where I want to look at Matthew 22. So that conversation was just to build up what we're looking at here. And it's a very short reference. And it's when Jesus is asked by a representative of the Pharisees, we're starting in verse... 35, Matthew 22, verse 35. So it says, one of the Pharisees, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question, testing him. First clue there, he wasn't asking because he wanted to receive the response. He was asking to try to prove him false. Yeah. He, was, he, was, he wasn't asking with good motives. I actually heard Tony Evans say today, and I love it, he's like, it's okay to ask God a question. It's not okay to question God. There's, this, there's a difference. Um, asking God a question is asking, why is this happening? Questioning God is bringing God's motives into, into question. It's demanding an answer. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There, there is a why, difference. Why are you allowing this to happen? I think it's okay to ask that. But when you're at, I think what Tony Evans means by that is when you're questioning God, he's talking about in the context of almost uh, condemning God for what he's doing. Yeah. Sort of what Job almost erred into. He got very, very dangerously close to the point of questioning God mm -hmm. and not just asking questions. And that's when God put him in his place. Mm -hmm. Yes, the attitude in which we approach him. Yes. Attitude. There's a, yeah, exactly. There's a difference between, like you said, why and why are you doing this? You know, and anger, right. anger why. And so, right. Your, yeah. your heart your heart gets scaled yes. over when your heart yes. gets scaled over and, and, and the love kind of dissipates out of your heart. That's, that's when you start, right. That's when you start questioning God's motives and we should never question his motives because 
his motives are always good for us, no matter what. Yeah. It I mean, it amazes me when I hear people say, like, there is no God. I don't believe in God. But then, like you are saying, they question <laughs> God. I'm like, how can you question somebody that you say you don't believe? Mm. You know? Yeah. Or they'll sit there and say, well, this and that about the devil. I was like, okay, well, how can you believe in one side, but not the most high? I mean, how can you just do one side, be one-sided on it all? I think it's a great line in that movie, God's Not Dead, that first one where he encounters the professor, and he actually says that. You know, he they get into the Spain, they get into a little bit of a defensive arguing type match, and then his response is, how can you hate somebody that you don't believe in. Right. Right. Well, that doesn't exist. Yeah. And so, you know, they sit there and they downgrade, downgrade. And I'm like, mm-hmm. how can you downgrade somebody that you say ain't real? Yeah. But yet they justify themselves somehow and say, well, he's not real or he'd do this, 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 and this. I was like, but you're talking about him like he's real. Mm-hmm. You just pretty but much it, answered your own question. Who, me? Yeah, because they're justifying themselves. Oh. They're justifying the sin that they're in. That's yeah, what it's, they're doing. it's built into each and every one of us, not to get too far off time. No, go ahead. But it's built into each and every one of us to worship. Yeah. God's designed that into us. He He's he created us for worship. Now, the his desire is that we worship him. But many will reject him and worship other things. They'll worship people. They'll worship objects. They'll worship... I mean, we have a lot of idols in our world today that we may not set up a statue and bow down to, but there's a lot of things that we put in our life that, that take the place of God in our life that are, that are idols in our life. Absolutely. And, well, I hope I didn't and, take us off track because I didn't mean to. And so, no, and, so, and so that, and so that's built into us to worship. Mm-hmm. So that's why they're, that's why they question. We don't believe in God. We're, we're agnostic or we're atheist and we don't believe in God, but we just say a prayer for me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> well, can I, what good, why what is good is the exactly, prayer going to Exactly. Do it, exactly. You know? Why, why, why do they do that? Because it's yeah. ingrained deep in our soul mm-hmm. that 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 desire to worship. We'll connect that to that reference. It goes into love as well. It does. It, it absolutely does. Because yeah. we can connect that to that reference from Exodus 20. Because how did that start? Yes. With a warning against idolatry, against yeah. false worship. Because the premise of that verse is, no matter what, you're worshiping something. Yep. You're worshiping something. Yes. The Most High is telling us, you're either worshiping me my way or... You're worshiping a false god. Yeah, those are the only two options. There's no atheist option. There's no non-belief option. You're worshiping something. Yep. Yeah, and the false it, it's god, either me or it's not. It could be anything you put in before God. Yeah. No matter what it is, and they people could, don't realize it could be this bottle. They right blind themselves to yeah. it. They do. You know, mm-hmm. because I'm not worshiping anybody. Yeah, you are. Yeah. yeah. You just don't realize it. Yeah. You know, and then later on, when it does finally hit them, or God puts them in a place where it does hit them. It's like, man, was I wrong? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or, you yeah. know, sometimes. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's important to understand how he defines loving him. Yeah. That's why it's important, because he doesn't give us the freedom to love him however we choose. Right. He tells us how he feels loved and comes down to what we've already read. And that's that's what it looks like in practice. So this teacher, or I'm sorry, this uh, this lawyer from the Pharisees asks Jesus in chapter or chapter 22, verse 36. He says, "Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law?" So he's talking about the biblical law. 
great there is the Greek megas, and it, it, it means uh, grand or large in scale or preeminent. So he's asking, he's not just asking for a great commandment, he's asking for the king of the commandments. If What's the greatest of all commandments? Verse 37, Jesus said to him, you shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great megas. This is the great and foremost commandment. What's, what's cool there is, is, is Jesus makes sure that there's no ambiguity here. He repeats that word megas, but then he also adds the Greek word protos there for foremost, which means almost the same thing as megas, that both of those terms can mean preeminent. So it's like Jesus says it in two different ways. This commandment is the absolute top. Like he says, he uses two different, very strong Greek words to say this is a plus top of all the commandments. There's nothing that supersedes this commandment. Love the most high with all your heart, mind, and soul. He's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter six there, and we'll get back to that later because that's important. Because when he references something, he's not just referencing the verse. That's too often how we, how we read it. <laughs> Scripture wasn't broken down into chapter and verses then. It was a full scroll. Typically, the way you would handle um, religious arguments, this would be an example of a midrash, like a, a, a religious debate. Is what this would be. When you pointed back to a verse or, or you quoted Scripture, you were pointing to the full context. Right. You're not just pointing to that isolated verse and saying, apply this, but ignore everything around it. It's the full context. We're going to get into that in a little bit because it's very important. But then he follows up and he says in verse 38, I'm sorry, verse 39, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18 there. Notice that he doesn't call the second commandment great or, or foremost. Neither of those Greek words. He doesn't use, he doesn't describe it as megas. He doesn't describe it as protos. He says it's second. It's like it. It's related, but it's secondary. What he's presenting here is the top tier commandment is loving the eternal father with all your heart, mind, and soul. The second commandment under that, under that is loving your neighbor as yourself. Not equal to and certainly not above. Under. He's saying love God first and foremost. Love your neighbor second. Loving your neighbor always has to be secondary. I want to round back to that to answer that third question, why that matters. But I want to finish this last verse because this is important too. In verse 40, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. That word depend there is kremonumi in Greek, and it means to hang from or to suspend. So I, I was going to use a different analogy, but I love what you mentioned, Micah, about the shelf. You're talking about putting things on a shelf. I think that's a perfect analogy for what Jesus is saying here. So what he's saying is these two commandments are like shelves on a wall. The, the first and foremost is on the highest part of the wall, loving God with all your heart, mind, and soul. The second shelf is under that. Every single commandment given in the law, every prophecy given can be, can be, can be suspended on one of those two shelves. Too often the way we handle this, and I've seen it, I've seen it recently actually is, well, Jesus simplified the law. He just, you know, the new law is just love God, love people, and that's it. He got rid of everything else, all the other commandments, he threw those away, and he, he made a new law that's just love God, love, love people. That's not what he says. That's not what he said here. He was asked, what's the greatest of the commandments in the law? Jesus quotes from the law and gives him two commandments, 
one on top and one underneath it. And then just to reiterate that he's not throwing the law away, he says that every single law given can be suspended from one of these two. He is not saying, I'm getting rid of all of the rest of the law, throw that away, get rid of it, it's not applicable to you anymore. You have to, you, all you have to do is love God, love neighbor now, no matter what you decide that looks like. Because that's what happens. When we, when, we, when we say that the only law now is loving God and loving people, but we don't define love, anybody can define that any way they feel like. And that's what happened to this church that burned down. That's what's happening to churches everywhere. We're defining love however we feel like, mm-hmm. based upon what the culture around us says. Because we've, we've tried to reduce the law down based upon a cherry-picked reference from what Jesus said when Jesus himself said that's not what he was doing. Mm-hmm. I'm not telling you get rid of the rest of the law. I'm telling you that the law is defined by yes. loving God and loving people. That's what he's saying. He's not saying the only law is left or love God, love people. He's saying the law is defined by loving God and loving people. That's very important. And now I want to round back. We might take a break first, actually. You guys got any thoughts on that before? It's first and foremost because this, the only way to love our neighbor as God wants us to love them is to love God. That's why it's foremost. Yes. Because we can't love our neighbor and love people the way that God wants us to love people without loving him first. Absolutely right. Because he is the very definition of love. Let's go ahead and take a short break. While we do that, we're going to play a song by ASAP Preach. This is actually my all-time favorite song right now, and it's called Live Without You. Love this. Definitely hear this. Take in what he's saying here, and we'll be right back on the other side. Don't go away. So blessed in the mighty name of Jesus. Come on, let's praise him. Hey, hey. Sick with it. Wickedness. I dug a ditch for myself, then I slipped in it Now I'm looking at the throne of he who sits in it I need forgiveness, I'm a sinner, I'm admitting it Say yes to me, come rescue me Bless those and the ones standing next to me The bloody bled for me, see it was shed for me They put a crown full of thorns on his head for me And he was pierced with the spirit through the rear For the evil I committed and the things that I did Speak to me, please reach for me Bring peace to me, Jesus, sweet peace to me Please surround me with the counsel of your saints The prayer of the righteous is the joy that gives me strength Cover me, Lord, comfort me You discover me at times when I was suffering You had love for me when no one else had love for me You did enough for me, with you I went triumphantly You said trust in me, live for me Hey, as I live through you, I can heal the sick through you Come on I'm living all my days out, yeah It's only you that I pray to Cause you're the only one who came through Nobody did In your word I find peace when I open it Peace, cause you're the missing piece to my brokenness Bad money used to get it in these streets So find me a sipping lean Desires to live in clean But I 
Again, that was Live Without You by ASAP Preach. So we've read the reference. We went through it a little quicker than I probably intended, but that's okay. Maybe we need more time to talk about it here. I want to go back to that question, why does the order matter? Because that's really what I'm getting at. Why does the order, why, why does understanding that loving God and loving neighbor aren't equal? Why is it important to understand that loving God first and foremost, is always elevated above everything else. That he is our first love, our foremost love, our preeminent love, not a competing love. Because it keeps us on track. Keeps us on track for him, keeps our, keeps our theology, right? Because we were talking during the break about the plumb line. If that plumb line gets off just a little bit, we don't realize it. Pretty soon, a little further down the line, that little bit turns into a lot. Mm-hmm. And so we end up having, like the preacher you're talking about, he's there because he probably didn't wake up thinking that way. Maybe he did, I don't know him, but he probably didn't wake up thinking that way, but his alignment was a little bit off along the way. Yeah. And now all of a sudden, we're at a place where we're accepting same-sex marriages, we're accepting the fact that it's Mother Earth, it's not an eternal father who is sovereign and in control of everything. It's... Well, you know, it's just kind of whatever we want to do. Yep. And and, and it, it affects every single thing that we do. If we don't love God first, that's why he says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto you. Everything's going to fall into place after that when we seek him first. Don't, you know, like I view it, God as the fountain of love. How can you really love anything if you don't love God? If you don't have the original waters if, in reference to a fountain, and and love it comes is, from that. Yeah, exactly. Love's a fruit. You know, you think of the fruits of the spirit. You know, one of those is is love. It's it's what the spirit produces in our life because of our relationship with him. And the only way that I can love my spouse as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it is to love God first. Yeah. Otherwise, I, I humanly I can't love her in that way. To love her unconditionally. And I, I don't believe this may be a little bit off subject, and I apologize, but I don't believe that we'll ever fully understand unconditional love. I mean, we, we just don't because we're humans and we, as much as we try not to, 
we we are conditional sometimes yeah. in our love. No, that's how my- and, and that's why loving others, if we make that the priority, that throws everything else off. Yep. Because I, I don't know why I'm using hand motions on a video, <laughs> on an <on> audio <laughs> podcast, but you know, that, that, that throws everything, that throws everything off. That gets us on the wrong track because now we're elevating that above God. And we're like, well, well, you talked about in the first half. Well, yeah, we're supposed to love people because God loves people. So maybe it's okay. We just tolerate it. And we just accept it. And we just, yeah, this, and then we're, then we're way off track. This command from the Father doesn't make my neighbor feel yes. loved. Yeah. So I'm going to throw away the commandment from the Father in preference to loving my neighbor. Yeah. You see how like how subtle that is? I want them to feel love. I want them to feel welcome here. So I'm going to kind of downplay this commandment to make them feel more welcome. And eventually you just treat the commandment like it doesn't matter at all. It's like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. You know, I mentioned on the roundtable that, that one of my deflections or my primary deflection was um, elevating, elevating my love for people I'm in relationship with over my love for the Father. Let's be super transparent. What I was talking about was my wife. And I'm talking about some issues that, I'm, that, that I've been, that he's been working me through at home. Um, and he's had to reveal to me in a very painful way that I idolize my wife. Um, what I mean by that is that I love her so much that at some point it very subtly superseded my love for the father mm. in a way that I wasn't aware of until he, he had to bring it to the surface in a very painful way. And the irony of it is um, when you love a person and you're not dependent, you, you almost treat, you get to a place where you're so dependent on the love for the person that you're treating the father like a fallback plan. Um, so you, you love somebody and you expect that love to be reciprocated back. And when you don't receive that love reciprocated in the way you think you should or expect, then you run to the father to feel it. But you're treating him, you're treating him like a fallback. You're not treating him like your first love. You're treating him like a fallback when the people you love don't give you what you want. And the danger there is that very quickly and very subtly turns into resentment and bitterness. And then your love for the person turns into hate. Over time, it turns into hate. And you don't realize it's happening until, um, until it gets very, very dangerously close to, to, to too far gone. Now, without him, it is too far gone. He can fix it. He's, he's shown me that as well, but he has to be our first preeminent love. See, this is the thing. The, the, the reason I'm bringing that up, you cannot love your neighbor, whether your neighbor is your spouse, your friend, the, the person standing next to you in the checkout line. You cannot love your neighbor right until you love the Father through Jesus first. He has to, he has to pour his love into you so that you can love your neighbor correctly, yes. or you, you, you never will. I want to read this because I think it's it's very applicable to what you just said, Micah. It's uh, from Haggai, chapter two, and it's in this back and forth between the the Holy Father and the people. And through Haggai, the Most High asks in verse twelve, "If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with his fold, or cooked food, wine, oil, or any other food, will it become holy?" And the priests answered, "No." So what he's asking is, if you take this holy thing, you put it in your pocket, and you touch something that's neutral, does the neutral object become holy? Biblically, no. According to the law, holiness does not spread. 
Holiness remains in the object. So holiness only comes from the direct um, um, manifestation of God. So God has to declare something holy. He has to make it holy. Holiness does not spread on contact. Then Haggai said, if one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered, it will become unclean. Then Haggai said, so is this people, and so is this nation before me, declares Yahweh, and so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. What he's saying is, biblically, uncleanness does spread. If, if an unclean object touches a neutral object, it becomes unclean. Biblically, this is a spiritual teaching tool. What he's saying here is sin, the stain of sin spreads. It spreads like a cancer. It spreads like leaven in, in, a, in a bread dough. Holiness doesn't though. Holiness has to be a direct intervention from God himself through Jesus. But if you allow uncleanness and sin to enter into your heart through a lack of love, that will spread through your whole being like a cancer. It will destroy you and eat you up from the core. That's what he's warning about. And the only solution is to go to him and give it over to him. Bob mentioned on the roundtable, I'm sorry to keep hearkening back to the roundtable, but Bob had mentioned that he tried to squash his old man when he got married. And he successfully did that. He kept the old man at bay for a long time. God had to let the old man come out again so that Bob could hand the old man over for God to squash him. Because that uncleanness was still there, and it was still spreading. He didn't notice it. It wasn't pouring out to the surface, but it was there. It was there. And he had to cut it out because uncleanness spreads. Mm -hmm. And the only solution is to remove it entirely. And the only solution is to treat him like our first love. Correct. It's the only solution. When we elevate love for our neighbor over and above our love for God, though, it just leads to compromise. Have you guys ever heard of a term seeker sensitivity? Yes. You want to define it for us? What it means? I can tell by the look on your face, you know exactly what it is because you're not impressed. <laughs> yeah. No, but basically a seeker, seeker sensitivity or seeker mentality is that everybody is searching for God in their own way. So we're just going to allow everything, tolerate everything, because eventually they're going to come around and turn to God in their own way. So we're not going to preach on sin. We're not going to tell them about their sin. We're just going to kind of let them discover that on their own. Yep. That's exactly what it is. It, to some degree, I, I, especially in the Western world, I think the vast majority of churches have adopted some form of this. Yes. Some are extreme like that church we referenced, others are very subtle. What it, what it essentially says is, out of love for my neighbor, I want them to feel loved and welcomed. Yep. So even though we used, and I hate to harp on this, but it's the month for it, we used LGBT as an example. You'll see, you'll see this a lot in churches that they'll have practicing homosexuals present. Totally unrepentant. No desire to repent whatsoever. And there's almost a boastfulness about, well, they feel welcome here. So we must be exhibiting the love of Christ because they feel welcome here in their unrepentant, sinful state. To be seeker-sensitive, we don't want to push them away, so we're not going to talk too much about that specific sin. When it's, when it's extreme, they never talk about the sin. 
like there's no desire. The extreme, on the extreme end of seeker sensitivity, they treat it like it's not a sin at all. Like it's okay. God doesn't really care because love for neighbor supersedes how low God defines love for him. On a lower end, it says, well, we just want him to get in the door. We want him to feel comfortable in the pew. So we're not going to really preach on that too much or at all to get him comfortable in, in the pew. We'll talk about it later. Here's the problem. Later never comes. Mm-hmm. When, when, you, when you allow that seeker sensitivity mentality to invade your mind, you'll keep telling yourself, eventually I'm going to have this conversation with them. Eventually we're going to get them into discipleship class or something. We're going to bring this up. We're going to get, the, we're going to get them to a place of repentance. But let's be real. And you've talked about this before, Bob. You've tried to do a discipleship class. How many people showed up? Oh, none. None. None, not at all. I've done it. I, I sat there four weeks in a row. Nobody showed up. Yep. Mm. They always show up to Sunday service, though, right? Yeah, correct. So if, uh, go ahead, I'm sorry. The sad thing is, is, is the churches of today push comfortability instead of conviction. Yes. If you don't have, if, if you're just making people comfortable, how do you expect them to find God? Or how do you expect them to, to come to God if they have no conviction? How are they ever going to love God the way he defines being exactly. loved? And, and the only way to love God is you got to get that conviction in your heart. Yep. You got to understand that that sin is, is what's separating you from God. Yep. You know, um, you just got to have the conviction, period. I yep. mean, like I said, we was talking out there before, you know, if somebody gets their toes stepped on, they get real agitated. Well, when you're getting your toes stepped on, it's not the person, it's not the person that's conveying the message. It's God that's convicting you because you know you're in that sin. And most people do not wanna do not wanna say that they're in sin. Yeah. They just wanna be comfortable. They they wanna they wanna they wanna go to the social club and just be sociable. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Well, uh, and this is the reason I bring this up, because this the, the seeker-sensitive mentality is built upon a foundation of loving thy neighbor. Yeah. Loving your neighbor is good. When it becomes wrong is when it, it, and I'm using my hands too. I don't know why I'm doing this, okay? So when loving your neighbor is, is so elevated that you start setting aside the way God defines love, then you start compromising your love for God. Mm-hmm. So you want your neighbor to feel loved at the expense of making God feel like he's despised. Like his ways aren't good enough for you. And in, in, like I say, even on a low end of it, nobody's showing up for discipleship classes anyway. So the only time they're there to hear the word to be convicted is on Sunday service. But if you constantly have a secret sensitive mentality on Sunday service, you say that you're going to speak truth eventually. When? If every Sunday it's secret sensitive because you don't want anyone to feel convicted, if you don't want it, if you never want to speak the full gospel, because I'm sorry, guys. Gospel isn't just you get a get out. Of, it's a get out of hell free card. You guys have you've mentioned that several times. That's not what the true gospel is. No. The true gospel, every time it's preached in Scripture, is repent for the forgiveness of your sins. That's what Peter preached. It's what Stephen preached. It's what John the Baptist preached. It's what Jesus preached. Repent for the forgiveness of your sins. That means to turn away from your sin. They weren't seeker sensitive. No. Like it or not, Jesus was not seeker sensitive. Now, what I mean by that, because I, I can tell there's something about this that's bothering you. It doesn't mean that you that you that you. No, it's not bothering me. No, I didn't. I, I didn't mean that as a call out. I just want I wanted to make sure that I convey what I'm saying. Right? It doesn't mean that you don't want the seeker to come to Christ. But seeker sensitive means is you you 
you want them to feel good about the sins they're committing so you never, ever speak the truth. Right. Just like you mentioned on the roundtable that you feel like you've got to tell the people the truth, whether they like it or not. You don't ever want, you know to, what bring, I mean? you don't ever want to bring your sins up and throw them in their face. Yeah. That's Correct. exactly what it is. But when, when you say that it's not brought up, okay, because they're, sen- they're being sensitive to them, right? Mm-hmm. So they don't bring it up. Same token, though. How can you sit there and not, you know, and say this and that and cherry pick the Bible, but overlook that section every time and still put yourself in that situation? Yes. To where if you do hear it, then the church gets judged on it because they're speaking the truth, but yet you can't handle it. Yes. And I, I'm glad, I, I'm really glad you brought that up because this is another thing. I used homosexuality as an example because of that church that we referenced. That's not the only sin listed in scripture. No. This is the other problem. A lot of churches on the other end want to harp on things like homosexuality, yep. but then they cherry pick. They cherry pick hard. And I'm telling you, non-believers see that. So when you, let me give an example that's going to make some people uncomfortable, okay? When you come to the fourth commandment that says, Remember the Sabbath day, the seventh day, to keep it holy, because in six days I created the earth, and the seventh day I rested. God himself gives us the reason for the Sabbath. It points to him as creator. Forever, he says. This is a forever statute. It never ends. He says repeatedly throughout the law and in Ezekiel that it's a sign marking his people. He says it points to him as the creator of heaven and earth. He never says that it's some sort of like symbol for sin. I've heard that, like it's a metaphor for sin. Nowhere does scripture ever say that. The Most High never says that. Nowhere does it say that you need to keep a Sabbath principle. I've heard that preached. He just wants us to have a Sabbath principle. No, that's not what he said. The Most High in the fourth commandment, and he repeats it in Exodus chapter 33, and it's actually of the Ten Commandments, the most repeated of all the commandments. And it's also the only of the Ten that he says, remember, almost like he foresaw a time when we would willfully forget he says it's it's the seventh day, not a principle, a day. He says this. When we come to the fourth of the big ten commandments, and we say, that's not for me, I can ignore that because I have freedom in Christ. But then we pick out apart from Leviticus that says that homosexuality is a sin, and we say, You need to repent, sinner, because you're gonna go straight to hell because you're disobeying the law of God. They see what you're doing. They see the hypocrisy because they see, okay, you're ignoring this law. And you're saying you have freedom in Christ. Why can't I have freedom in Christ to commit my sin? That's exactly what they're asking. I'm committing sin just like you are. That's what they say. Why don't I have freedom in Christ to disobey like you do? You see what this does? Like, this is how the non-believing world sees what we're doing. They see the hypocrisy. And if we would just get back to the purity of our relationship with him, just hearing his voice, accepting his expectations of us, and obeying out of love, not to be saved, not to be justified, just out of genuine, heartfelt love at the bare minimum, the Ten Commandments. We'd at least obey that. You know what I mean? And then we would avoid a lot of the arguments because honestly, when they chastise, when non-believers point the finger at churches for being hypocritical, usually they're right. Usually they're right. And that's a problem. We can't point the finger at one sin and then, and then use liberty as an excuse to sin our own way. Do you see what I'm kind of saying? Yeah, but at the same token, the ones that are pointing the finger are no different than the one they're pointing the finger at. That's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly the point I'm making. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you, 
you can't point a finger at somebody and think, well, that finger is not pointing at me as well. Yes. Right. Yeah. Because it is. If you can stand there and point your finger, then you better be able to stand there and take the finger being pointed right back at you. You're absolutely right. If you want to convict, you've got to be able, you've got to be willing to be convicted. And honestly, we should seek conviction of ourselves first before we seek to convict others. Correct. Usually that's just a, a deflection. We want to deflect away from our own sin by pointing the finger at somebody else. You know, knock down that low-hanging fruit. That's a problem. And it all comes back to not treating him like our first love. If we just treated him like our first love and just took his voice seriously, the world would be, the church at the very least would be much different. Yeah, take the beam out of your own eye before you try to take a speck out of somebody else's. Yep. Absolutely. Let's pull the needle off the record. This is going kind of long. Final thoughts. I don't know. Think before quick judgments. Christ is the perfect example of love. And love is about giving. It's giving of our time. It's giving of our heart. And it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Yep. And so he, he's, he is our example. To look at how he loved people. And, and he never once throughout his earthly ministry condoned sin. He never said it was okay. He showed grace and he showed love to people. He told them to repent, but he never condoned the sin that they're in. It's just like and, that. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, you're good. It's just like that bracelet they had out not too long or a while back. That WWJD. What would Jesus do? Yeah. Ask the question. Yeah. Ask yep. yourself. Yep. And if you don't have the answer, look it up first. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Then and then proceed. Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. So that way you do proceed with the grace and love. Mm, absolutely. The easiest way to answer that question is just look at what did he do? Exactly. What did he say? Exactly. What did he preach? That's why I wanted to look at Matthew 22 in context because it's pretty clear what he's saying there. And, and that's the that, better, that's the better that definition. Our, group, our yeah. group text today, I don't know if everybody saw it or not. That's the better definition. What did Jesus do? Absolutely. It is. Not what would he do? What did he do? Right. Look at what he actually did. Yeah. I ain't got nothing. Really? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, pretty much explained everything through the chat. So it's pretty much been said, just love God first. That's all you got to do. Yeah. That's right, man, Bob. I want to be very clear. I'm not promoting legalism. What I'm, what I'm promoting is just simply loving the father the way he says he feels loved. There's a big difference. Yeah. Legalism seeks to justify yourself out of pride and ego. <laughs> Loving the Father, <laughs> it's just a genuine, pure relationship. It's not necessarily the commands you're obeying that are, that's different. It's the heart condition. Yes. It's the heart condition behind it. We have got to surrender our whole hearts to Him. That said, if your theology or your understanding leads you to cancel out the words directly attributed to the Father or the Son, then it's wrong. I'm going to say that again. If your theology or your biblical understanding, your personal interpretation, leads you to cancel out the words directly attributed to the Father or the Son, then it is wrong. I don't care how popular it is. I don't care who's preaching it. I don't care how many church fathers agree with it. 
if it disagrees with what the Father or the Son says, it is wrong. And how does the Father say we love him wholeheartedly? What's his love language? I said we'd get back to Deuteronomy chapter 6 earlier, because that's what Jesus quoted from when he said, love, your God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. This is what that reference from Deuteronomy chapter 6 says. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes, the judgments which Yahweh your God has commanded me, Moses speaking, to teach you that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess. He's talking about the Torah. So that you and your son and your grandson might fear Yahweh your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly just as Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. That's what Jesus was quoting. When he said the greatest of all commandments was to love God wholeheartedly, that is the full context of what he was referencing there. Mm-hmm. Is this what we're taught too often in the churches, or is this what we're taught not to do too often? Too often this is exactly what we're taught not to do. I guess I'll just leave it with a question that I don't want to answer. I just want us all to really genuinely think about it. Who will you believe? Are we going to believe what we're told about what the Father says, or are we going to believe what he says? Are we going to believe what we're taught about what Jesus says, or are we going to believe what he says? We have to make a choice. I just know that I, I emulate Joshua. Choose you this day. Choose you this day who you will love and serve. As for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. I got that side in my house. It's a beautiful quote. It's one of my favorites. I got that sign on my house, too. It's hanging on my wall in my front room. It's hanging on my arm. Oh, <laughs> well, we got it in our front room. For whoever walks in this house or whatever, like he was saying, the Lord comes first. Yep. And that's that love, you know, and I would never expect, people ask me all the time or have asked me, well, you love your wife, right? And I was like, I do. But I love my God first. Yes. And I would never, ever ask my wife to choose me over God. Mm-hmm. You know, God's my love, and I love my wife. My wife is more the love companion. Because we had a situation a while back where uh, somebody had their so-called first love. Well, when they passed or left, a new love supposedly came in. Well, when that was done, that person didn't feel loved. And I was like, well, that's because you got your true love, your first love, which is God, and then you have your companion love. Yep. He he is the only one that will never leave a vacuum. He'll, he'll never leave a void. Like, once you're in his love, you're there forever. He's the only one you can depend upon all your days. Sorry. Didn't mean that. 
I hear. <laughs> Micah, you want to pray us out? Father, we do love you. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to just chat together. Lord, I pray that you would search our heart. Lord, as David, David cried out, search me, O God, and know my thoughts, know my heart, and see if there's any wicked way in me. Lord, help us to, to do that, Lord, all those that are listening to this podcast, Lord, that we do need to do some soul searching. Lord, you, you condemned over and over and over throughout your word about leaving our first love. Lord, I think so many times we've, we've done that. So, Lord, we ask your forgiveness for us when we've done that. Lord, we ask for your, your revival in our hearts. Lord, we know it starts with, with each of us individually to allow you to, to work on our hearts and to challenge us so that we will live for you, live holy, surrendered to you. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.